Well, hello everyone. My name is Ash and it's my pleasure to lead the Fishpond site of City Church, Bristol. And I'd like to begin by making a confession to you. And that is that I believe jollof rice to be a thing of beauty. You see, jollof is sublime to the eyes, it is sumptuous to the taste buds, and it is satisfying to the belly. Now, I haven't conducted a, a scientific uh, poll, a, a thorough scientific experiment, but my expectation is that the vast majority of people in the world who've ever tasted jollof have tended to come back and ask for a second portion. You see, from my perspective, the goodness of jollof is, is pretty much uncontested. However, what is contested is the method of jollof. You see, you find you, you might talk to a Nigerian friend and they have a particular way of preparing jollof. But then you get into conversation with your friend from Ghana and it would appear as though their method is actually quite different. And then you're a little bit confused, so you pick up the phone and talk to your Senegalese friend who says again that their method, their way of preparing jollof is also different. You're getting multiple perspectives, multiple ideas, often fiercely held as well. Friends, there are a variety of perspectives on Jesus, on who he is and what he is about. You know, four ancient writers uh, wrote four accounts of the life of Jesus. And the reason why they wrote those four accounts was because they, they believed that getting the right perspective on Jesus was absolutely vital. They, in fact, believed it to be a matter of life and death. We must see Jesus rightly. We must have the right perspective. And one of those writers was a man called John Mark. He wrote an action-packed account of the life of Jesus. And over these weeks into the, the summer, we're going to be working through Mark's action-packed account of the life of Jesus. And today, this particular episode, we're going to be focusing in on uh, the perspective of Jesus' friends, what they thought about him, how they saw him, how they understood him. So I'm going to read for us from Mark chapter 8 and verses 27 through to 38, which say this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, up until this point in uh, the story, Jesus has demonstrated his authority. We saw it a few uh, weeks ago when Ben preached for us on the interaction between Jesus and the demonized man. Jesus demonstrated his authority over evil spirits. Jesus demonstrated his authority over sickness. Jesus demonstrated his authority even over death. Jesus demonstrated his authority over the stuff of life. There's, a, there's a, a, another story in this account of a time where Jesus fed more than 5,000 people with the equivalent of a few loaves of uh, Hovis Best of Both and a few uh, packs of uh, Bird's Eye Fish Fingers. More than 5,000 people. Jesus demonstrated his authority over all things. And as uh, Jesus travelled from town to town, preaching and teaching and healing and working miracles and signs and wonders, as he did this, he travelled with a team. They were called disciples or followers. They were friends of his. So Jesus' friends saw all of these things that he did. They saw his authority at work. And now they enter uh, one of the villages surrounding a town called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks a question. Jesus loves asking questions. He asks, who do people say I am? Uh, and that kind of question wouldn't be out of place in a, the, the classic TV drama series, The West Wing which I believe to be one of the best TV drama series ever created. And, and that series focuses in on a man called Jed Bartlett, a president of the United States of America. It's about Bartlett and his team, his fantastic team that work with him. And uh, regularly through that drama series, you, you, you find Bartlett and his team are wanting to find out what do people think about him? What are people saying about him? It's a regular feature of the series. And the reason why the question is asked, because they want to consider, well, um, like, um, should he sign this particular treaty now? Or should he make a change to taxes? Or should he uh, change the way that he communicates? It's all really about political strategy. Who do people say I am? Jesus asks, the same question, but for different reasons. Jesus asked the question so that his disciples might reflect more deeply on his identity. Who do people say I am? They told him, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a powerful preacher powerful preacher. Many gathered to hear his words. Many gathered to hear what he had to say. John the Baptist, the powerful 
preacher, in fact, was killed for his preaching. He was killed for his uh, messages. But there was something in Jesus, there was something in the way that Jesus was that I suppose chimed with many people that made, made them think, this, this guy reminds me of John the Baptist. So some said maybe this guy is like John the Baptist who's come back to life again. Some say Elijah. Elijah was uh, a man who lived a few hundred years before, powerfully used by God. Worked some just amazing, extraordinary miracles. In fact, Elijah was, um, well, not quite unique, but one of only a handful of people in the Bible who, who um, we record that he, we, we don't get a recording of his death. Essentially, uh, Elijah was swept up off into heaven by uh, uh, chariots of fire. And many Jewish people hoped and expected that one day Elijah, the great miracle worker, would return. And many thought that this Jesus might therefore be Elijah. John the Baptist, Elijah. One of the prophets. Uh, the prophets were those who spoke authoritatively on God's behalf. They spoke God's pure and undefiled message. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. It's entirely understandable why people would come to those conclusions. It's entirely understandable why people might have those perspectives on Jesus. You know, um, this time last year, I uh, finished a Master's in Applied Theology. It was a fantastic time. I really uh, appreciated uh, just the opportunity to uh, be trained and developed in that way. But one of the big things I, I learned in the course of my Master's was the importance of reading widely and reading deeply. Uh, reading uh, things from people who I might not necessarily agree with. And, and what I found as I went through the Masters was um, I'd, I'd pick up a certain book on a subject and I'd read it and I think, oh, they make some really good points there. I, I'm, I'm in full agreement with that. Then I'd pick up another book which maybe had a slightly different perspective. And I think to myself, oh, wow, they make a really strong case as well. But their perspective is different to the first person's. And then I'd pick up another book and it'd be another perspective. But they also make some really good points. And you find yourself interacting and engaging with loads of different perspectives, recognising that there are pros and cons, there are strengths and weaknesses. And you're taught during a master's to reflect on those different perspectives, to, uh, to think deeply about them, to critique them. But here's the thing, is one of the things that um, one of our lecturers uh, really helped us with. Chris Jack is a, a lecturer, a fantastic, wonderful, godly guy who led the, uh, the, the master's programme. And one of the things that he um, just kept on banging on uh, about to us was he said that whenever you write an essay or a dissertation or a, or a piece of work, yes, you want to read widely. Yes, you want to bring in different perspectives. But ultimately, you need to come to your own conclusion. Ultimately, you need to nail your colours to the mast and say, this is what I think. And that was so, so helpful for us. The importance of nailing your colours to the mast. Jesus asks another question. Who do you say I am? What's Peter's response? We read that Peter says, you are the Christ. 
Now to Jewish ears of that time, they, they would have heard when Peter says, you are the Christ, really what they would have heard is, you are the promised perfect king. The promised perfect king. You know, literature abounds with stories about the promise of a, a, a perfect king who will establish a perfect kingdom. Wakanda. Gondor. Camelot. Narnia. The list, friends, is endless. We find within us we find within us, all of us, we find a deep desire and an eager expectation for a perfect king to arise. Uh, regardless of culture, regardless of time period, I would say all people deep, deep, deep in their bones have this deep desire and eager expectation for a perfect king to arise and to make everything right. You know, the Bible tells us that God made everything good. It tells us that brokenness and death come into the world when uh, humanity rebels and humanity turns away from God and does its own thing. And even in that moment, when the first humans turned away from God, the Bible uses a word, as a small word, called sin. Even in that moment, when we first turned from God, when we first rebelled, when brokenness and, and death enter into the world, even in that moment, God preaches. God preaches to humanity and to the forces of evil. And in that moment, God promises something wonderful and glorious. God promises that one day a king will arise and that king will fix everything that is broken. And ever since God preached that message, ever since God made that promise, all of humanity has been waiting. All of humanity has had that deep desire and eager expectation for a perfect king who will establish a perfect kingdom. Peter's declaration, you are the Christ, is essentially the declaration that you, Jesus, are the promised perfect king who we've been waiting for. You know, friends, Peter knew a, a long like Peter was well versed in his Jewish history. He'd have known his, uh, his Jewish Bible. He would have been aware of the long line of judges and kings who failed miserably. Uh, leaders who promised much but delivered little. Uh, leaders who not only fail to lead others well, but fail to lead themselves well. So what's different about this one? What's unique about this particular person in front of him? You know, earlier I talked about four ancient writers, those four ancient writers who wrote four accounts of the life of Jesus. And um, one of those other writers writes about this interaction between Jesus and Peter and his disciples and um, um, gives maybe a little bit more detail than John Mark does. And in that account, we find that Jesus explains to Peter that he, Peter didn't just, um, just you know, uh, deduce or work out the identity of Jesus uh, by his hard work, by his cleverness, by his calculations. 
You know, Jesus was basically saying, Peter, you're, you're not doing a, a Sherlock Holmes here or a Hercule Poirot, okay? It's not because you're particularly clever. Peter, what has happened here is God has done something miraculous. God has lifted the fog from in front of you. God has put glasses over your eyes so that you can see what has always been right in front of you. The promised perfect king. God has revealed something to Peter. Friends, who do you say he is? The promised perfect king we've looked at. Secondly, the wonderful way of the king. How does this king establish his kingdom? Well, let's look together at verse 31. What does it say? And he began to teach him that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I'd love for us for a few moments to think about this interaction. Think about it in terms of a soundtrack or a song, maybe. And if it were to be a soundtrack, we'd begin with Peter's declaration. Remember, you are the Christ. You are the promised perfect king. Uh, and I suppose if it, if it was part of the song or, or a soundtrack, that, that initial bit would be booming. It'd be powerful. It'd be epic. There'd be, you know, there'd be trombones and bassoons and just big heavy, rich, deep instruments, okay? It, it would just be mega and booming. You are the Christ. And we move from Peter's declaration to Jesus' plan, right? And we, we get to Jesus' plan and we realise that the, the, the music takes a slightly different turn. We, we, we find that actually it's full of sorrow at this point. Sorrow and a lingering sadness. A lingering deep sadness that sits for a while the sadness doesn't move on quickly the sadness sits for a while and then eventually we get a rising to a crescendo at the end and i can imagine that crescendo would probably involve some trumpets okay but friends here's the thing from peter's perspective the section in the middle it just ain't right it don't fit it don't it don't work it's not in keeping really with what we're doing jesus you see, Peter is expecting something with big bass and high tempo from start to finish, all the way through. But Jesus seems to be playing something entirely different. And you see, Peter comes in and it's like he tries to, 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 to rip the conductor's baton away from Jesus. It's like he's trying to you know, put an arm, an arm around Jesus and say, mate, let's just, just, just step away. I'll take this from you. I'm going to take over from here. Jesus has absolutely none of it. Friends, the interesting thing is when you look at these accounts of the life of Jesus, you realise that Jesus is exceptionally gracious and patient and kind uh, to his friends, to his disciples. Uh, particularly when they make mistakes, uh, particularly when they say foolish things, Jesus is wonderfully patient. But in this particular situation, Jesus is not going softly, softly. He is not going softly, softly. This is serious business. And it's as though at this point, Jesus would look Peter square in the face. Serious expression. Peter, you are trying to play man's tune. I am playing God's tune. 
and I will not be taken away from it. You see, man's tune and God's tune are entirely different. See, Peter has got it. He's, he's understood this thing of Jesus being the, the, the promised perfect king. Absolutely. But because his perspective is still so uh, man-centred, he thinks that the way of the king will be through strength and conquest. And that's entirely understandable because the, the kings of the world, how do they establish kingdoms? How do they keep their kingdoms? Well, it's through strength and it's through conquest. Therefore, this is what Peter is expecting of Jesus. But friends, it would appear as though man's way is not the same as God's way. Uh, and what Jesus communicates, and he communicates it plainly, is that God's way is the way of weakness and of suffering. Weakness and suffering. How will the promised perfect king establish his kingdom? Through weakness and suffering. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus uh, said, I have authority to lay down my life and authority to take it up again. That's exactly what he did. He laid down his life and he took it up again. Why? To establish that perfect kingdom. You know, our rebellion against God, our disconnection from God was the door through which death and brokenness entered the world. You know, we could never mop up our, our mess. Why? Because we keep on creating more mess. We, we, we could never um, settle the bill of our sin, of our wrongdoing. Why? Because we keep on making withdrawals. That has been the story of humanity from the start. Even the very best of us. But here's the thing. Jesus has no mess of his own. Jesus has no bill of his own to pay. He has no sin never done or thought or said anything wrong perfect all the way through so Jesus in his graciousness and his kindness cleans our mess and pays our bill how does he do it he does it on the cross he willingly freely gives his life in exchange for ours he dies a horrendous death on a cross it's the way of weakness and of suffering. As Jesus died on that cross with nails through his hands and his feet, you know, in an earthly sense, it did, he did not look like a king. This was not the picture of a king that people expected. In fact, he was, he was mocked while he was up there. And uh, there was a message placed over his head, written over his head on the cross. It was a message of mockery, really, saying, here is the king of the Jews. As if to say, how pathetic is this guy who, who claims to be a king? Uh, this guy who is dying horrendously, who is experiencing shame for everyone around to see. The way of weakness and suffering. Friends, without suffering, without the sorrowful middle, the deeply sad middle to that, that tune, there would be no triumphant crescendo. There would be no crowning, there would be no coronation. And friends, I wanna say it is a glorious tune. It is a beautiful and glorious tune. Heaven rejoices at that tune. 
Heaven rejoices at that story told and retold about the, the perfect King Jesus, eternal God who, who takes on flesh, becomes like one of us, lives perfectly among us, gives his life freely and willingly on our behalf, suffers and dies, is dead for three days and rises again victorious over death ascends to the right hand of the majesty in heaven and will one day return and make all things right. Heaven rejoices over that tune. Evil spirits flee from that tune. People are transformed by that tune. It is a beautiful tune. The way of weakness and suffering is how he establishes his kingdom. And finally, what does that mean for us as subjects of his kingdom or those who might seek to follow him? What does it mean? Now, we've learned already that Jesus is the promised perfect king. We've learned that Jesus's path includes suffering and death. You know, thinking a little bit more about his kingdom and what it looks like to be part of his kingdom and to be followers. You know, Jesus tells loads of stories about his kingdom. He tells stories about seeds and trees. He talks about a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, which uh, when it grows becomes the largest of all trees. He tells a story about a, a, a beautiful, just wonderful, a magnificent pearl. He tells a story about a treasure um, found in a field and a man who is just so enamoured by this treasure that he, he sells everything that he has, goes and buys a field so he can get to that treasure. The kingdom is all about rich and overflowing, bursting out abundance. But it's not an abundance that one can point at and say, oh, I did that or I worked for that or I can get that or I can acquire that. No, it's an abundance that doesn't that one. It can't be worked for. It can only be received. Friends, you know, it's impossible to um, to receive when you have full hands, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever had that experience uh, where you have full hands and someone wants to offer you maybe a slice of cake or a cup of tea. And you're like, I would absolutely love it, but I don't know where or how I'm going to take it. In that moment, you need to make a decision. Are you going to relinquish something? Are you, are you going to let go of something that you're carrying to maybe potentially receive something ever so slightly better? Many of us live with full hands. Many of us love full hands. And this isn't just a 21st century thing. This is a, this is a human thing, okay? This, is, this has been the case right from the start. We like to build up, don't we? We like to build up our bank balances. We like to uh, build our brand, some of us. We like to uh, build uh, ever-increasing layers of comfort and security around us. We like to build, 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 acquire, acquire, acquire. Jesus says, be willing to lose all of that for something better. That's what it looks like to follow me. That's what it looks like to be part of this kingdom. You know, to follow Jesus is to be living for his kingdom first and foremost. It means living for the glory of God above all else. It means recognising that he is the most precious person, the most precious thing that you will find. Therefore, it is a wise thing, is an absolutely wise thing to be willing to lose all else that you might find him, that you might be received by him. Friends, let's read the final verses, verses 38 to 40. 
Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, how we see Jesus now, how we respond to Jesus now has echoes into eternity. So I end by asking a simple question, a question for you to consider, a question for you to ponder, but a question for you ultimately to answer. And that question is, who do you say he is? And what are you going to do about it?